0: This has been such a crazy week. We have so much news to get into. Of course, we have Microsoft reporting their earnings. The stock is up huge. This is one of my biggest holdings. It's a company I'm incredibly bullish on, and we're gonna be going through in detail their earnings report because they lay out everything that they've done, everything that they're forecasting for the future, and we get an inside look of how this business is doing. So I'll give you what I think are the biggest takeaways from Microsoft's earnings report. But then of course, we can't forget about Google, This company reported earnings as well. It's up a little bit. The market is is treating it with a a little 1.3% stock rise today. But I thought there is a lot in Google's report that was actually encouraging. So we're gonna be looking at some of my biggest concerns about Google. That is the excessive amount of employees, the wasteful spending, and then of course the cloud growth. We'll be looking at all of these different things and I'll be highlighting why I think this report was encouraging. And then finally, we have Meta reporting their earnings as well, we're gonna be diving into that one in detail as well. So huge earnings reports with Microsoft, Google and Meta, but then we also have some bonus news. Microsoft's deal with Activision Blizzard has reached a roadblock by the UK government. This is a frustrating piece of news for Microsoft because they're blocking this deal out of reasons that don't make any sense. And I'm gonna go through this report and the UK's arguments and why they have this one wrong. Then we also have the news that Apple won the case with Epic's game. This is a bit forecasted, but they finally declared victory. And then we have some some troubling news here. There is a Reddit user who bet over $100,000 of his savings on Bed Bath & Beyond. And he lost 100% of that money because the company went bankrupt and he's basically distraught like his life is over. So I wanted to respond to this post and offer my advice to this Reddit user. Now, before we get into the news, let's take a quick look at my portfolio. We have the passive income portfolio reaching a value of $426,000, 60,900 in gains so far, and it's performed really well so far. This portfolio, I've been been very pleased with the performance. It's up around 10% year to date. It's been doing really well, and I can't complain about it. In fact, when I'm looking at buying companies and I'm searching for ones that are in a dip in my portfolio, I'm struggling to find any companies in a dip. Generally speaking, all of them are at least flat or going up. We have in the financials, S&P Global and MasterCard. These companies have performed okay this year. They haven't done terrible, but they also haven't reported earnings so far. So we'll see how these ones do when they report earnings. My guess is Because Visa already reported earnings and the earnings were good, that MasterCard is fine. So I'm not too concerned about this one, but we have S&P Global. I think the earnings will be fine because Moody's has reported earnings, they did okay. And then MSCI reported earnings and theirs were in line as well. So I think S&P Global will do well, but it's still some unknown. They have other segments of their business that could be struggling. If this one does dip, if S&P Global goes down after its earnings report, I have cash set aside to buy that dip. That's why I'm sitting with $12,000 of cash, just in case one of my key holdings sells off big after their earnings. The other categories that have been doing okay but not great are the industrials. Canadian Pacific and Union Pacific have not caught a bid this year. They've been trading flat, they haven't been going anywhere, and that's okay with me. Not every company you hold is gonna go up every single day, and these ones are doing fine. So we'll see what the earnings reports are this year. I think that Canadian Pacific is going to have a lot of positive developments, so I'm very excited about that company. And I believe that if Union Pacific can find a good CEO, one that can really increase the margins and operating efficiency of the business, this could be a very, very good play for the future. So I'm still very optimistic about both of these companies. The restaurant category has been an insanely good investing category so far. Starbucks has done well. I've earned decent gains on that, company, buying it low and then selling most of my stake when it went up. And then we have Texas Roadhouse. This is one that I have not sold any of. I've continued to hold it, but I'm no longer adding to this position because it's raced up a lot over the past three months and it's gotten closer to what I think its intrinsic value is. So this one is a long-term compounder, in my opinion. I think the company will do very well over the next 10 years. It has not reported earnings yet, but I think the earnings will be relatively good. I see continued demand in the restaurant category. In the consumer category, I don't mess around here. I invest in the companies that I think are the very top of the very top. Costco being the best physical retailer, Nike being the best apparel brand, Pepsi being the best junk food consumer defensive company, and then Estee Lauder being the best makeup company. In their respective spheres, these are the top companies in the world. And all of them have performed like the top companies in the world. So I'm very bullish on them. Now, currently I still hold a massive stake in Costco, still long this company, even though it trades at a higher valuation, I still believe that Costco has a very long runway of growth and it will generate continued free cash flow. In the real estate category, I only have one company, which is Vici, a massive $52,000 position. And I'm currently in the green by $11,100. And I'm buying more and more and more of this company. I bought more of it this year and I continue to add to the position any time it trades down. I don't know if you've taken a trip to Vegas recently. But if you have, it is like the party land of planet Earth. Everybody goes there and it's just jam-packed with people partying, music, gambling, shows, casinos, sports, events, everything you can dream of in one single place. Vegas is the Disneyland for adults. It has the most crazy architecture, the biggest events. It has sports coming to it. It has conventions. It has shows. It has everything you can dream of all in one place. And the demand there is insane. Hotels are being booked out. Every single room sold. There's massive investments going there. There's massive infrastructure going there. There's lots of developments. I think the property that Vici owns is irreplaceable and it will be worth more and more in the future. So not only does it yield a lot and pay a hefty dividend, but I think the company is going to be worth substantially more in the future. Now finally, we get to the tech category. I've concentrated my big investments in tech into two different companies, Apple and Microsoft. And I've owned both of these companies for over five years. I first bought into Apple and Microsoft back in 2017. Now Microsoft, I only owned a little bit back in 2017. So the position size was very small, just a few thousand. But Apple I bought into a little bit heavier. I bought into Apple because I thought the company was misunderstood by the market. I thought that Warren Buffett was correct. The company is not just a hardware seller. It is a company that entraps people in its massive high barrier moat, and then it monetizes them a thousand different ways. And that monetization has led to substantial free cash flow gain Apple over the past five years. When I purchased Apple back in 2017, their free cash flow per share was $2.43. Since then, in 2022, they've done $6.87 in free cash flow per share. So they've about 3X the amount of free cash flow per share that they've done through aggressive growing of their free cash flow and doing buybacks. That combination has led to massive free cash flow per share. So Apple's results didn't come from expertly timing this company. The results came from buying into a company that's very high quality, has very good economics, and grew its free cash flow per share at a very high speed. Now that's the type of company I'm looking for. And that brings us to Microsoft. Microsoft is a company that I've been buying into more recently because I consider the moat of Microsoft to be unassailable. And in their earnings reports... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling it shows this. Now we have Microsoft's earnings report that they released yesterday after market close, and this caused the stock to go up nearly 8% today. One thing that I like to do as an investor, and this is a mentality that I've had to develop over a couple of years, is to not let the, the huge changes in price after a company reports earnings dictate whether I'm happy about the report or sad. And that is difficult to do. In many cases, and this is the normal human behavior, if the company stock price goes up, investors are very happy. They're excited. The company is doing well and you're making money and it makes you automatically have a positive sentiment on their earnings report. But then if a company ever comes in below expectations or misses its earnings in one quarter, that can cause you to be sad. And if you're sad on a holding, you may sell it for the wrong reasons. So rather than judging the company based off of where the stock is trading currently, I like to dive into the report and try to unbiasedly form my own sentiment on the company, whether I think the core indicators of the company are moving in the right direction. The core indicators being the actual moat of the company, the market position, the pricing power, and the core economic drivers of intrinsic value. So having said that, let's go ahead and jump in and dissect this earnings report. First thing that we can look at right here that gets investors excited is the word AI. We have AI right there, the first sentence of commentary from the CEO of the company. He says the world's most advanced AI models are coming together with the world's most universal user interface natural language to create a new era of computing. This is Satya Nadella and he is, he's a silver tongue. He really, he's really a great speaker and he's enthusiastic and he's charming and he's exciting. When I listen to the earnings call, Satya Nadella seems, he just seems more excited about what's going on with Microsoft and AI. He really seems pumped when he's doing these earnings calls. And it's exciting to see a CEO that seems so enthusiastic about the things the company are doing. This is a a bit of a contrast from, from Sundar Pichai. Satya Nadella seems to really be enjoying what he's doing and this competitive edge they have with Google. Now he goes on to say that across Microsoft Cloud, We are the platform of choice to help customers get the most value out of their digital spend and innovation for this next generation of AI. So right there, the first two sentences, he mentions AI twice. So we know the CEO is excited about the company and AI. They're intermingling it with every part of the company, but let's go ahead and take a look at the numbers. Now let's take a look at their revenue, operating income, and earnings per share growth. These are the main metrics of the company. We have the top line here, which is 2022. Then we have the 2023 updated numbers we can see the percentage change in their revenue. They grew revenue by 7%, but then on a constant currency basis, they grew up by 10%. If you don't know what constant currency means, that means if you removed the impact of foreign exchange, Microsoft does a lot of business outside of the US. If you remove that impact, which is outside of their control, they grew their overall revenue by 10%, which I think is very impressive in this environment. But then we have the operating income growing 15% on a constant currency basis. We have net income growing 14%. We have the diluted earnings per share growing 14%. These are wonderful numbers across the board. This shows a very healthy, fast-growing company. Now, this actually beats my expectation. I thought that since Microsoft does so much business with such big companies, and most of those companies are trying to optimize, that Microsoft may be trying to swim upstream they might, they might have a little bit of pushback and they might not be able to grow as much, but they just prove investors wrong time and time again. This company has such a strong market position that they can churn out these impressive growth numbers year after year after year. It is really a spectacle to see a company this strong. Now, if we look at this on a breakdown of the different business lines, we can see the same growth metrics. We see the productivity and business growth at 15% the Intelligent Cloud at 19%, and then Personal Computing minus 7%. That's right, this went down. Right now, people are not buying as much hardware. I think what happened is during the COVID 2020, 2021, there was massive pull forward in the Personal Computing category. Everyone went out and bought all the Personal Computing stuff they needed, and now Microsoft is growing the software side of it. So this is not concerning to me, This is a part of business, not every part of business is perfectly consistent every single year. Some of it's gonna be a little bit more cyclical, especially when you have big things like a pandemic. So even though this part of the company shrunk, I don't think that this has any core issues with the company. I don't see this as actually an intrinsic negative for the company. Now Microsoft is a massive company that has all of these different products and services they offer. They do a breakdown of all of it. And again, it's just remarkable to see how almost the entire company is growing. The cloud revenue grew 25%. Office commercial products, 17%. 365, 18%. The office consumer and cloud product services grew only 4%. We have LinkedIn growing 10%. LinkedIn has been a cash cow for Microsoft, one of their many good acquisitions. We have Dynamics and cloud services growing 21%. Then we have Dynamic 365 growing nearly 30%. Massive growth for that category. Azure and other cloud services growing 31%. Windows OAM shrunk nearly 30%. So that's one part of the business that's in decline. Even the Xbox content and services eked out growth of 5%. And keep in mind, there's a lot of pull forward in 2020 for the game category. So it's impressive to see growth in that category as well. The search grew 13% and then devices, the hardware shrunk 26%. Again, I don't think that this is a long-term concern. They'll re-accelerate growth in hardware over time, but everybody has the latest device right now. So in terms of overall growth of the company, I see good metrics across the board healthy revenue growth, healthy operating income growth, and even broken down by line item, I see a very healthy business where almost every segment of it is growing. And most importantly, all the most important segments of it are growing the fastest. So Microsoft still has a very healthy growth profile. Now moving on, we can take a look at Microsoft's balance sheet. Currently they have $104 billion in cash. So they have a lot of cash on hand. If we put that in perspective, last quarter, they had 99.5 billion. So they increased their cash balance by around five billion now we look at their long-term debt and this is around 42 billion dollars so 42 billion and we can look at the long-term debt over time notice the strong trend since 2016 of almost every quarter the long-term debt going down the previous quarter it was 44 billion so it has gone down again so of course in aggregate when you compare the cash balance to the debt of the company It's about as good as it gets. They are bolstering their cash balance because they do want to buy Activision Blizzard for $70 billion. So that's part of the reason they're holding so much cash right now and we'll talk about that deal a little bit later, but as of right now, Microsoft has one of the top three balance sheets in the world. Now, finally, we get to the cash flow statement. This is where I get to my favorite metric of the company, which is the free cash flow. We can do a simple calculation of the traditional free cash flow calculation, which is the net cash from operations, 24.4 billion, and then we subtract out the capex, which is $6,600,000. So we have $17,800,000 in traditional free cash flow for the company. Now, another thing that I like to do, which is not traditional, but it's my adjusted calculation of free cash flow, is to also subtract out the stock-based compensation and see what that leaves us. Now, the stock-based compensation came in at $2,465,000,000 for the quarter. If we subtract that out, that leaves us with an adjusted free cash flow, $15,369,000,000 in adjusted free cash flow for the quarter. This is free cash flow minus stock-based comp. The interesting thing is the free cash flow is actually lower this quarter than it was one year ago. A year ago, they reached that huge peak of $20 billion in free cash flow. So it went down to $17 billion. So that's a little bit of a a negative spin on it. The free cash flow went down a little bit, but on a positive spin, last quarter, they had a peak of 2.54 billion in stock-based comp but we see here that their stock-based comp actually went down sequentially over the past quarter. So Microsoft is breaking their trend of raising stock-based comp every single quarter. Now it's actually starting to go back down. So this is overall a good quarter. The free cash flow is more in line with its history and the stock-based comp expense is going down. It shows that Microsoft is taking concern over their expenses. So now that we've looked at the earnings report of Microsoft, we've dove into the numbers, we've seen the developments of the company, it puts a little context of why investors are so enthused about this company. It's up 8% and the gains continue to compound. In my opinion, I still think that Microsoft remains in its dominant growing position with a very long runway for growth. Their cloud business alone is great. Their video game business is great. Their office products are great. And the fact that Satya Nadella has really taken the mantle of the AI king from Google has been a very positive development for this stock. So I think investors should be very pleased with this quarter. I think the reaction in the stock going up is warranted and appropriate. But I don't invest in companies based on quarter to quarter reports. I invest in them based on the intrinsic value drivers and the moat. When I was buying Microsoft, and this is my first buy of the company, back in December 2022 and 2017, I bought it at a share price of $85 per share. Nothing has changed. Every single quarter, I see the developments, and I see that Microsoft maintains its incredible moat. So as of right now, I have no plans on selling any of this company. Now, next up, we also have Google's earnings report. Unlike Microsoft, this company's only up half a percentage today. And Google remains the optically cheaper company. So even though Google trades at a much lower P.E. ratio than Microsoft, it's not having quite as good of a day. But let's go ahead and take a look at the earnings report and see what we can find. Now, at the very top of the earnings report, we have another one of these nice overview quotes from the CEO of the company, which is Sundar Pichai. And how much do you want to bet he mentions AI in this quote? He says, we are pleased with our business performance in the first quarter with search performing well and momentum in cloud. We introduced important product updates anchored in deep computer science and AI. Our North Star is providing the most helpful answers for our users, and we see huge opportunities ahead, continuing our long-term track record of innovation. There you have the nice overview from the CEO. Now let's go ahead and take a look at the actual numbers. Now we can first look at the overall growth of the company. This is a big concern for big tech right now. They did so well after the pandemic and growth has slowed down a lot over the past year. Google grew their overall revenue on a constant currency basis at 6% year over year. So comparing that to Microsoft, Microsoft grew at 10%, Google grew at 6%. That shows you the differences in the nature of the business. Google is largely an advertising business. Advertising is based on supply and demand. How much advertisers want to pay Google. How much demand there is for the ad market. It's a little bit more volatile than Microsoft's business. Microsoft has a lot of licenses. They have a lot of subscriptions. Most of Microsoft's business is reoccurring revenue. So Microsoft has better control over their growth than Google does. A lot of people are bashing Google for only growing at 6% constant currency or 3% total, I don't think this is so bad. I think this is actually good growth considering how quickly they grew just a couple years ago. So I don't really see this as a huge negative. I think 6% growth is pretty strong considering the context here. Another thing we can look at with Google is their earnings per share diluted EPS was down year over year a little bit. That's another thing that's gonna hit Google and I think a part of the reason why the company's not not having the best day today in the market. But If we go down and dive into the segmented operations, I think this gives the best idea of what's happening with this company. Starting off, the search business is growing. $39 billion to $40 billion in revenue for the quarter. Then we have the YouTube segment of the business. This actually declined year over year, so it went down ever so slightly from $6.86 billion to $6.69 billion. I think that this is one little hurdle in the long-term growth of YouTube, if I had to guess 10 years from now, YouTube will be much bigger in the terms of revenue it does than it does currently. So I don't consider this an intrinsic value problem with the company or that YouTube's in secular decline. I think the company is just facing some minor headwinds in the advertising market. Now, the next segment of business that I wanna look at is one that I think is the most important developing story for the Google thesis, which is the Google Cloud Growth. If this becomes highly profitable and a growing segment of the business, it will be a core intrinsic value driver for this company. And it did grow substantially over the past year from 5.8 billion to 7.4 billion in revenue. That is a 28% growth rate. So very strong growth in cloud even with a lot of companies trying to optimize their cloud spend. So I'm very excited to see that cloud growth with Google. Now, another part of this company that I've been concerned about for over a year, I was concerned about this before it was popular to be concerned about this, which is the number of employees that Google hires. I think they're hiring too many employees too quickly, growing the company's headcount too quickly. And at the numbers here, it shows a lot of increase in employees, but they have a note here, They say that the number of employees included all of the employees affected by the reduction of our workforce. So they're basically saying that this number is not accurate because that number, the 190,000, includes all the employees that we recently let go. So the real number is much lower and we'll know that number specifically in the next quarter. Now, moving on, we get to the operating income or loss of these different segments. For example, Google services, it made a lot of money, 21.7 billion, that's great. But then we get to Google Cloud, which had a surprising result here. It went from losing $706 million last year to now having an operating income of 191 million. It's in the green now. Now, my first reaction was, this is remarkable. If they really made it that profitable that quickly, that's incredible. But when we read in the notations, they say that a lot of this was a result of a change in amortization for the Google Cloud. So basically, they changed around some accounting, which made it go profitable much faster than expected. But even netting out that change in accounting, it was still far above schedule. But either way, I see this as a very positive development for Google. Having growth in the operating income of Google Cloud year over year is going to be a long-term intrinsic value driver for the company. It will become a key part of it. I think that Google Cloud could become a bigger, more important part than YouTube for the company. That's how bullish I am on this segment. So we'll see what happens in the following year, but my guess is this number is gonna to continue to grow at a rapid pace. Other bets on the other hand is a money furnace. They throw money in there, they light it on fire. I'm not bullish on this part of Google. I wish they would focus more on getting an ROI, investing in parts of the company where the expected return is very attractive. Now moving on, we get to the balance sheet of Google. The company's current cash balance right now is very high. It's currently at 115 billion dollars. Google has a problem and their problem is that they're too profitable. They make too much cash and then they sit the cash in their cash balance. They're not doing effective things with it to earn a very high ROI. Now Google could do something with all of this cash. They could look in the market and they could try to find a very high quality company that's selling at a very reasonable price. A company that they know is probably undervalued and they could try to buy that company buy out more shares in that company. Of course they could do share buybacks. That's what they should be doing with their cash balance. Google has $115 billion in cash and their total debt is minuscule. Look at the amount of long-term debt they have, $13.6 billion. So they have $90 billion in cash sitting there while their company is undervalued. And in my opinion, they should be using this aggressively to do share buybacks at an accelerated rate of what they're doing right now. Now on that note, they did authorize another $70 billion in share buybacks. So that's what's authorized, but Google should be spending all of this money. They should spend it because they have nothing better to do with it. They are too big and too monopolistic of a company to reasonably have a large acquisition. So there's really nothing else they can do than buy back their own stock or pay a dividend. Now if we move on to the cash flow statement, we can calculate the free cash flow here and look at how the free cash flow and the stock based compensation is doing. We'll first calculate the traditional free cash flow. We get the net cash provided by operating activities, which is $23.5 billion. And then we subtract this number right here, which is the capex of the company, $6.289 billion. The result of that is $17,226,000,000 in free cash flow. This is a traditional free cash flow metric. Now, of course, on this show, we look at another expense, which is the stock-based compensation expense, because you don't really get this free cash flow if the company's generating it by diluting you, the shareholder. So if we adjust out the stock-based compensation expense, which is a staggering $5,284,000,000 Keep in mind that is twice as much as Microsoft paid in stock-based compensation last quarter. We get a result that is 11 billion, 942 million. We can see that the stock-based compensation really hits the number there. The before and after is pretty stark. So the stock-based comp went up around $700 million year over year. I think this is gonna go back down because they're laying off employees and they're still having to pay severances and stock-based compensation packages to them. But once that works its way out, This number should go down, which will help the free cash flow going forward. Now, another thing I'll point out is this free cash flow is helped immensely by the huge decline in CapEx year over year. Last year they did $9.786 billion in CapEx. This year they are only doing 6.289. So the decline in CapEx creates a more efficient business. They're able to generate more free cash flow. If they can get both the stock based compensation expense down and the CapEx expense down, this free cash flow will explode. You'll see huge numbers there. And that is a great storyline for Google. The company's growing its free cash flow substantially by getting all different expenses down. Now, moving on from Google, we have Meta's results here. And like we've been seeing, big tech is on fire with these earnings reports. Meta's up 9.5% after hours, another huge spike like Microsoft's. So far, Microsoft has done great. Google's done well. Let's go ahead and take a look at meta platforms. Now, we'll start off with the opening phrase and quote from the CEO of the company, Mark Zuckerberg. We'll see if he mentions AI in it. Quote, we had a good quarter and our community continues to grow. Now, he says, our AI work is driving good results across our apps and businesses. Right there, three for three, we have AI mentioned in all the earnings reports in the opening quotes. He goes on to say we're also becoming more efficient so we can build better products faster and put ourselves in a stronger position to deliver on our long term vision. So there we have two really key words that investors want to hear. We have AI and we have efficiency. It has been the year of efficiency for Meta and that's had a staggeringly good impact on the stock price. Now, let's go ahead and go over to the financial highlights here. They have the revenue growth of the company. The revenue grew 3%, so this is right in line with Google's growth. I don't believe this is the constant currency growth. If I'm not mistaken, this is not on a constant currency basis. So we have 3% growth, and then we have expenses of the company growing by 10%. That doesn't look so good. I I don't love the, the expenses outgrowing the revenue. Maybe he addresses this, or Mark Zuckerberg will address it later in the call, but it's supposed to be the year of efficiency, where expenses are going down, they're not growing at a faster rate than the revenue of the company. But here we see expenses growing faster than revenue, we're not off to a great start. We have the operating margins actually declining a bit for the company, going from 31% to 25%. Don't love seeing that. That's not a great thing. Let's go ahead and move on to the next line item here. We have the net income going down year over year, 7.4 billion to 5.7 billion. Not exactly the best numbers here. Even the diluted earnings per share are down year over year. So 2.72 to 2.2. And this is why I want to loop back and just look at the stock price. The stock is up huge after hours, up almost 9% which gives you the impression that the company's doing amazing and all the numbers look good, but then we look at the numbers and they don't seem to quite align with the sentiment of the market. Now, so far the financial metrics don't paint a positive picture, but when we get down to the operational and other financial highlights, this paints a far more positive picture, where the amount of daily active users on their various apps are increasing by 5% year over year, 5% monthly active users, Facebook users increasing, Facebook monthly active users increasing, All of these core metrics are moving in the right direction. And I think that investors are saying, all right, maybe the financials don't look great right now, but the company in terms of its user base is still growing, which is a very positive fundamental indicator of the company. So Meta is still growing as a platform. The financial metrics don't look great, but they're probably better than what the investors were expecting this quarter. And then we go into some other important details here. One thing that I want to point out, is Mark Zuckerberg has really pivoted towards this year of efficiency, focusing on optimizing the business, laying off some employees, making it so that the business is far more efficient, and then funneling money into buybacks. When we look at this metric right here, the amount of diluted shares outstanding, it went from 2742000000 to 2596000000 So they bought back well over 100 million shares. That is over a 5% reduction in the amount of shares outstanding. Huge share reduction. So that's a big factor in this stock. Right now, Meta is a buyback machine. Now moving on to the cash flow statement of the company. When I do a simple calculation of their free cash flow, I get $7,156,000,000. That is their traditional free cash flow calculation. And that puts them right around here. So next quarter will look like this when it's updated on Qualtrim. Not a bad free cash flow quarter based off their past couple of years, but it's still below where they were a couple years ago. So we're not quite where we were before. Now, if we adjust the free cash flow for the stock-based compensation, we subtract out 3 billion 51 million, which gives us a total of 4 billion at 105 million. So that's the amount of free cash flow minus the stock-based comp. So overall, not the worst quarter in terms of free cash flow. When I'm looking at Meta, however, I see some things that I don't love to see with this company. The CapEx continues to increase. Even year over year with their massive spending they've done on AI and on Oculus, on Reality Labs, all of that is adding up to huge CapEx expense. 6842000000 is massive on a quarterly basis. And I know that they've done layoffs recently, but their share-based compensation was a substantial increase year over year, going up another 500 million. Three billion in stock-based compensation for the company the size of Meta is quite a bit. So these two factors, the capex and the stock-based comp, are really eating into their free cash flow. So overall, I don't love the developments in terms of the financials of Meta. It's a company that I don't currently own because I believe there's better options. But this is the game of investing, which is a game of expectations versus reality. And Meta has surpassed their expectations, both in their amount of revenue and their earnings per share, in their amount of daily active users and monthly active users. They either met or surpassed investors' expectations, which is why the stock is up big after hours. So, congratulations to Meta Investors. Now, moving on, we have this news that Microsoft's $75 billion deal with Activision Blizzard is now hitting a roadblock. The UK has decided that they are going to block the deal. They rejected it, saying that it would hurt competition in the video gaming industry. Now, of course I could go in and highlight how this isn't true, how Microsoft buying Activision does not hurt the video game industry, how the only company that's highly anti-competitive in this industry is Sony, with the massive amount of exclusive titles they have. We could go into the details of that argument, but before doing that, I just want to take a step back and Restate what's happening here. Microsoft, a US-based company, is trying to buy Activision Blizzard, another US company. So what we have is a US company trying to buy another US company. And while that's going on, the UK is saying, you can't do that. My question is why is Microsoft concerned with what the UK thinks about this deal? Why should they care at all? If the UK wants to block this deal and they don't like that it happens, tough. Microsoft should still go through and buy Activision Blizzard. If the UK decides that they don't want to do business with Microsoft and they're going to block Microsoft from selling products in the UK, then that's a battle they can fight. But the fact that a government of a smaller country on the other side of the ocean can come in and stop a deal from one US company buying another US company right at the surface level is crazy. Microsoft should not be listening or caring about the opinion of the UK on whether or not they should buy Activision Blizzard. That's just the first point. And as much as you might think that this is an American-centric view, just reverse the roles here for a minute. If the UK had one larger company that was trying to buy another smaller UK company, and the U.S. government came in and said, no, you can't do that because we don't like the deal, you'd probably feel very frustrated in the U.S.'s interference with that deal. Two U.K. companies trying to merge. But that's not even really comparable because the U.S. is a massive country. The real comparison would be if the U.K. had one company trying to buy another, and then something like Sweden came in and said, no, you can't do that deal. Sweden doesn't like the deal, so the U.K. can't have one company buying another. I think it's fine for countries like the UK to have their objections and state their opinion, but as far as I'm concerned, I think Microsoft should completely ignore them and continue to go through this deal, because I think the UK is bluffing. When it comes right down to it, they need Microsoft products more than Microsoft needs the UK. And citizens in the UK want to play Microsoft games and Activision Blizzard games more than they're willing to go without. So I think this is a total bluff from the UK. I think if Microsoft pressed forward with this deal, eventually they'd go back to resuming business with Microsoft like they have been doing for decades. Now, on another piece of news, big tech actually had a victory here. Apple won the Epic Games trial. Remember Epic Games doing their Trojan horse and bypassing their payment method and then launching a giant campaign against Apple, portraying them as a huge monopoly that's bad for gamers and bad for everyone else? Well, they've had the lawsuit battle, and Apple has emerged victorious. Quote, today's decision reaffirms Apple's resounding victory in this case, with 9 of 10 claims having been decided in Apple's favor. For the second time in two years, a federal court has ruled that Apple abides by antitrust laws at the state and federal levels. So as of now, Apple's moat in the App Store still remains intact. Now finally, we have the tragic story of this Redditor that posted just yesterday that they lost $100,000 to Bed Bath & Beyond all of their life savings gone to this company that has now officially declared bankruptcy and it's been delisted from the New York Stock Exchange. He says that he wants to ask around if anyone's going through the same thing and how they're dealing with it. I've been telling myself that it's time to move on and there's no use to pouring cold water over a dead plant, but it's been just mentally draining. You know, it's like all these years of hard work gone just because of a stock. There's anyone going through the same. Please share how you're dealing with it. Thank you. I think in this state, where you're this distraught by having this massive loss, it might be good to to seek help with it, maybe refocus your life on things that really matter, health and family and friends and that type of thing, and eventually just move on. The money's gone, you made a mistake, time to move on. Everybody makes mistakes in investing, although not everyone makes mistakes this bad or this ill-advised. And this is where I'd get into general advice if you've had this in your history. If you were at one point thinking that it was a good idea to put $100,000 into Bed Bath & Beyond, maybe individual investing is not the best route for you. Maybe just stick with ETFs. Picking out individual stocks is not for everyone. And if you invested in a company where the revenue line looked like this for years revenue was declining, a company where the EBITDA had been declining for years, a company where the free cash flow was in a steady decline for over 3 years, a company where the actual net income was not only in decline, but in deep decline in the red over the past 5 years. If at any point you thought it was a good idea to invest in this company, then it shows that you have incredibly poor influences, that you're listening to the wrong people, that you're surrounded by the wrong people, that your judgement is highly compromised, There's almost no point in Bed Bath & Beyond's history that it was a wise investment, but especially over the past 5 years. So I'm not sure what could possibly compel someone to buy this much and concentrate this highly into a stock where every core indicator is moving in the wrong direction. But if this happens in the past, I think it might be best to just buy ETFs and not focus on individual stocks. That'll likely be a much better outcome for this individual. Now that's all for this show. I hope you enjoyed the in-depth breakdowns. If you like this type of content, make sure to subscribe to the channel. I'll have more out in the following weeks. That's all for now. I'll see you in the next one.